Welcome to the Thinking Practitioner Podcast, a podcast where we dig into the fascinating issues, conditions, and quandaries in the massage and manual therapy world today. I'm Whitney Lowe. And I'm Tel Luca. Welcome, Welcome to, to the, the Thinking, Thinking Practitioner. Practitioner. Welcome to the Thinking Practitioner, and our podcast is supported by Handspring Publishing. Their catalog has emerged as one of the leading collectors of professional-level books written especially for body workers, movement teachers, and all professionals who use movement or touch to help patients achieve wellness. Handspring has recently joined with Jessica Kingsley Publishers' Integrative Health Singing Dragon imprint. So head on over to their website at handspringpublishing.com to check out their list of titles, and be sure to use the code TTP at checkout for a discount. And thank you again, Handspring. We're also sponsored this week by the Academy of Clinical Massage, where our mission is to help you become a better practitioner working with pain and injury conditions. And 2023 is bringing a complete overhaul to our comprehensive orthopedic massage program, and we're excited to announce some new opportunities to make our training even more accessible. Our full professional program package now includes numerous perks in addition to the coursework, and we have just introduced a new payment plan for that program to make it fit your time and budget even better. So check out more details of that program over at academyofclinicalmassage.com. So welcome everyone to Thinking Practitioner. I'm absolutely delighted to have my friend Walt Fritz in with me today. Good day, Walt. How are you? I am doing well, Whitney, and uh, thanks so much for having me here. Really appreciate it. Great. So for our listeners who might not have been introduced to you yet, can you tell me a little bit about your background, experience, what you're doing, what you've been doing, and what you're up to right now? Absolutely. I'm a physical therapist uh, based out of uh, upstate New York and um, been a physical therapist for a long time, 1985, graduate of the University of Buffalo. So uh, since then, been doing a lot of different things, pediatrics, home care, general hospital, developmental disabilities. And um, throughout that kind of that that path, I've kind of, well, no, not kind of, but got into manual therapy because, you know, PTs, yeah, we touch, we do manual therapy, but um you know, possibly in different ways or from different perspectives than the massage therapist. And I was introduced to manual therapy via myofascial release, cranial cycle therapy, zero balancing, and that's what got me started, which I kind of followed the myofascial release route for a number of years. And then um, for a lot of reasons, ended up uh, leaving that model and kind of looking for a, a new sense of self and a new um, community. And that's what's over the last 15 years kind of led me on my own path of um, where I'm at right now, which is teaching and practicing manual therapy from a very non-traditional, non-conformist type perspective of shared decision-making. And I hope we have an opportunity to talk about that if you're interested. Um, Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Cause it's, um, it's really been, the focus of my work, my research, my writing, and my practice for the past really six, seven, eight years is the shared decision-making model. And I continue to teach uh, continuing ed seminars. Um, what started more as uh, massage therapy, PT-directed classes, has taken, taken an interesting um, left-hand turn. And I am now primarily teach speech pathologists and other people working in voice swallowing, breathing, oral motor disorders. But that includes a fair amount of massage therapists who come to my classes for various reasons. So that's my well, nutshell. All right. Well, that's got a rich group of things that we want to dive into. So I want to kind of go all the way back to the beginning here and we'll sort of wheel our way through some of those things there. Tell me a little bit about your beginning entry into you manual therapy. I know, you know, the, the whole issue of manual therapy is 
viewed, at least from my perception, a bit differently within physical therapy from what a lot of our listeners do who do this as a, on a regular basis. What was it that kind of got you, got your interest peaked about doing more hands-on manual therapy work? Because I know a lot of people in the, uh, you know, a lot of my colleagues that I've talked about who are in the physical therapy world feel like they don't get time to be able to do that kind of thing because of the pressures of some of the economic models with, you know, with the insurance yeah. reimbursement, things like that. So what, what got you going down that path? Well, I mean, we had a fair amount of, of manual therapy um, education in college. It was a bachelor's degree program back then. So a lot less time for each sort of module, so to speak, versus the doctoral program of the present day. But, you know, that included, we, we learned massage, you know, I mean, we had two very, compressed and rather lame weeks of massage training, which technically legally licensed us to massage, having helped the patient who actually relied on me for that kind of care. But, you know, manual therapy is a broad term to physical therapists. Manual therapy can mean joint manipulation, joint mobilization, and very frequently in the literature, um, manual therapy is codified for joint manipulation, spinal manipulation. But it really is the broader term that I view it at as, as you know, any kind of touch-based interventions. Mm -hmm. um, I know that in the early, um, late 80s, early 90s, when I was, uh, you know, kind of a new practitioner working in a more generalist model, I think it was probably, I was doing earlier intervention at the time, birth to five. Um, we hired a physical therapist at the or the clinic I was working at who had done some training in mouthwash cranial sacral therapy back in the 80s. And, you know, he did a healthy amount of, of real and metaphoric arm twisting to me to get me to take um, a malfascial release and a craniosacral therapy class. I was reluctant because at the time, my my national um, organization, the American Physical Therapy Association, was really down on manual, I'm sorry, down on malfascial release especially. and was kind of doing a, a concerted um, effort of trying to discredit it. And I, mm -hmm. you know, I read that every month and I really had no interest in it. But you know, the, the arm twisting worked. I took a class and I got hooked. I, I, it, it was without sounding like I'm sexualizing it. It was very seductive. Mm -hmm. It was, um, it was very intriguing sort of that what happens when you get in a room with a, a speaker who's good at speaking, who's good at selling, who's good at convincing. Um, and I don't mean that in a negative way at all, but you know, the, the story becomes very compelling. And then, you know, combine the story with the actions, the quote unquote outcomes. Um, and yeah, I, I, I went headfirst into that rabbit hole and I, I went hard, um, went hard into the mouthwash release rabbit hole, especially so much so that I like then worked for um, that particular person for 10 years as a, as a teaching assistant. And I learned a lot. I learned a lot of really good hands-on skills. I learned a lot of really good interactional relationship pieces with not only my patients, but also all the students that I was responsible for helping. Um, it wasn't until later that I really kind of realized that it, in order to see the forest for the trees, I had to leave that model and um, you know try and get some good critical thinking skills embedded in my brain beyond just the yeah. that secret story of the fashion and everything else. So, mm -hmm. um, and you know, I'm a PT. I this is what I do. I have a very small practice here in upstate New York um, where I do accept some insurances. And you know, you talk about you talked about the economical economics issue with traditional physical therapy therapists um, having trouble applying manual therapy. It is more time intensive. It doesn't fit well with that model where, you know, you're in a big clinic with multiple people, both support staff and clinical staff, 
with a huge budget, et cetera. And, you know, reimbursement dollars aren't always the greatest. So as a result, the PT is seeing multiple people at once, but I continue to, um, to see one person at a time. I think probably just like you, Whitney, and just like a lot of your listeners. And if you walked in my office, it would, it, it would look a lot more like a massage office than it would a physical therapy office. But, yeah. you know, it's just some of the things we do. You know, there's been a lot of buzz and talk within our profession in the massage therapy world about improving our training standards and credentials. And we've talked on this podcast with a couple different guests about that. What I'm curious to hear what your thoughts are about the move to the DPT model in the physical therapy profession, how that's impacted individual practitioners or the access to care from from patients. Yeah, you know, I, I'm I kind of have. Um... I kind of look at it in two different ways, and both of them really are oppositional. I think as a as a professional accomplishment, as a as a um, notoriety for the profession, as well as um, really you know having some really high standards, I think the DPT has been really good. Um, I think it's a bit overkill. I think they could have stopped at the masters and got enough education and information and clinical experience to students in back then. But that um, you know they, they, they moved right along to the doctorate profession. Um, I know that it is in many cases it's priced the uh, the student um, a lot of students potential students out of the market because it's you know any doctoral program is really expensive especially when you then look at the commensurate pay that you're getting for a doctoral level um, position and job that doesn't quite keep pace with some of the other doctor professions. Yeah. I don't know. I'm a moderator of a lot of groups on Facebook and one of them is this a massive physical therapy group that. It seems like every week there's somebody really um, questioning their choice as a physical therapist. And a lot of it comes down yeah. to economics and the crushing caseload that a lot of physical therapists are expected to um, to maintain. And you know what? I'm, I'm, I've been able to uh, stay away from that, having my own practice and kind of doing things my own way. Um, and I'll probably retire doing this. Um, so, you know, I, it's not a great concern of mine, but I know it is for the profession. Yeah, I've probably read a lot of those very same threads that you were talking about, because that's what kind of got me wondering about this, was seeing a lot of discussion in a number of those different physical therapy groups about these very issues and just wondering, like, uh, wow, are we trying to sort of stare down that rabbit hole and, and go down this same pathway of continuing yeah. to there's, uh, you know, some discussion about um, somebody called it uh, credential inflation, I think was the term that they were using about just constantly feeling like we need to up the level of credentials and keep pushing and keep pushing. And, you know, so many of the physical therapists in practice were doing a lot of what chiropractors and physicians were doing in that time in terms of the level of, of involvement with the assessment and treatment process and kind of thinking like, well, we should be doctors also. And I think that yeah. in part what drove that, that model um, to the yeah. DPT. I, I do think that the, that the, well, the evidence-based model really didn't come into into play until the 90s. You know, I graduated from PT school well before evidence-based practice was the required norm, the expected norm in the physical therapy profession. Um, you know, there's a lot of detractors of evidence-based practice. And, you know, I, I understand some of those concerns, but I think a lot of the concerns stem from one's own beliefs and experience not aligning well with current-based evidence um, yeah. and the expectation of an evidence-based practitioner. And I do see from, you know, clinicians coming out with that DPT or even, and certainly the masters of physical therapy and maybe to a lesser extent, older people like me, um, a really under a, a solid understanding of what it takes to make an evidence-based model. 
um, is, you know, it's lacking in people like me, but that's really at the forefront. And, you know, from other professions, I see, I see it really easy to sell people um, on things that are sort of counter um, evidence-based and it almost develops a cult-like following to mm-hmm. not be evidence-based and um yeah. but that's not just in our shared professions that's i mean look at the world today and without even getting political or social um i mean it's almost like you know there's we're running in parallel universes and there's just thousands of these parallel universes and you know if you spend any time on social media you know you're you're, you're reading all these things in a niche group of you know it's all about the fashion it's all about the trigger point it's all about the neurokinetics it's all about this and this and this and it's like Man, oh man, aren't we working with a human being and not a select a collection or an isolated tissue or pathology or or view of how things work? And it's a frustration for me. I've been very yeah. frustrated. I've been very vocal. I've been, you know, um, probably not the most popular person in some groups because I'm not afraid to to say that the emperor's got no clothes. But um, you know, they're not always popular things to hear and say. So yeah, I want to follow that thread a little bit farther and call back um i'm pretty sure well i'm i think this is something that you said to me somebody said this to me one time and i think it was you when we were having that conversation we were just talking about in the green room before our thing about uh, when the last time we were together in winnipeg i think it was having lunch at a conference and i believe it was you that said this to me if you took um three or four different practitioners and put them in a room and videotaped what they were doing and took the sound off Mm -hmm. and then asked what was being done in those treatment sessions. What techniques were they using? What modalities were they using? It would be really hard for the observer alone to say what was being done just based on what they're seeing performed. That so much of this has to do with the narratives that we create around those types of of techniques. I don't remember if that was actually, was it you? Do you remember? Yeah. 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 I thought that was such a brilliant analogy. I've stolen that and used it many times in talking about this. Please, but this yeah. this issue about the these sort of um, particular modalities or silos that we create seems to produce a lot of obstacles in that way. And and I, I think that was a great way to kind of break some of those barriers down. Yeah, um, I, I I see it. I see it in the massage world. I see it in the PT world. I see it now that I'm in, uh, you know, these other worlds, speech pathology and myofunctional, oral facial myofunctional, that, you know, we're all so blinded by by the narrative of our story. And I I really, you know, I I, I, I guess I've, I've modified that story since we met in 2015 a bit and maybe made it a little bit um, smoother to tell that story, but it's still true. You know, you step far enough back and Basically, we're, we're touching another person. Mm-hmm. But yet, as you get closer, right, we get closer to each one, then the story gets magnified of what we think we're touching, what we think is wrong with the person, what we think that our touch is capable of influencing. And, you know, you and I have been there, and hopefully you and I aren't in the driver's seat of teaching people this, but it gets really tough to say no to a really good story when you're presented not only with the the work you know, and the outcomes and you feel better from it. But then somebody um, gives you what is said to be um, evidence and science to support that. You know, when I was taking this work back in the early 90s, I didn't have enough critical thinking um, skills or, you know, research-based chops to really 
adequately question evidence as it was presented to me. And I basically just accepted it because the work was so helpful. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. you know, that's a classic, it's a classic inroad to postdoc fallacy. It's like people tell you something, the stuff works and you believe their story when those two things might not have anything to do with each other. Yeah. And I think it's really unfortunate. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I, I do think that I or we are in minorities there and it's a tough, it's tough when you start going out there, you know this because you're out there on the road mm-hmm. and you start talking to people who have a firm set of beliefs and it's not just manual therapy beliefs, it's social, it's political, it's religious belief. You know, we, we don't like to change our mind. Yeah. Um, right. Because why should I? You know? Yeah. Do you think this is something that I, you know, I pondered in, in talking about this with a lot of people um, around this whole issue of these these narrative models around our, you know, theoretical ideas, what we think we're doing. A lot of those people, does that matter? I mean, does it influence the treatment at all? You know, for somebody who like is really bought into this particular model, and they get really good results, and what you often hear mm-hmm. is that, like, well, I don't care because I get great results and it works for me. So, does it matter? then that we're really trying to um, make those uh, narratives more accurate. And uh, I mean, I'm curious to hear your, your take on that. Yeah. So it almost can, you can almost step back from that and ask almost at a philosophical level, level, is it a lie if you don't know it's a lie? Is it, is it a, is it a mistruth if you believe it to be true? Um, I, I don't, I don't know. That's a real moral and ethical type of quandary for each person. I, I look back at my MFR days and I was telling what I thought were truths. Mm-hmm. And, you know, my great undoing was the Soma, Soma Simple debate of 2005, where, you know, I kind of went head to head with some really smart people who knew a different story than I did. And that made me, it was sort of like a five-year whirlwind of, you know, me having to really look at everything that I believed and, and yeah. trying to make amends for that. Um, I, I don't know. That's a, that's a hard one. I, I I believe that the more I learn, the less of which I'm certain, which mm-hmm. makes which is really a difficult thing, yeah. because I sounded really smart 15 years ago when I was an MFR expert, and now I think I know a lot more, but I may not sound quite as knowledgeable because I know there's a lot of uncertainty in everything that you and I do and teach, mm-hmm. and I I actually enjoy that that. Um, uncertainty, and I'm, I'm really comfortable sitting in uncertainty, but I do understand that, number one, a lot of people are not comfortable there. And number two, we get so invested in our leader, in our mentor, in our teacher, in our guru, whatever that is, that it, it it's painful to actually even have to open that door and say, was this person not wrong, but not totally correct? So yeah. I, I can understand and empathize with clinicians difficulty and you know you're on a bunch of the same groups as i am on on social media and there's a lot of constant you know hand-wringing it's like how do how do i come to grips with all of this and yeah everyone sort of charts their own path yeah one of the metaphors that i've sort of gone back to over and over again about dealing with that myself because i certainly have had those same quandaries and and instances in which my former world model of how i thought everything worked in the manual therapy world got really cracked and fractured and you know led me to to question a lot of the things that I was doing but uh a metaphor that seems to give me some sense of solace or comfort around that is a comparison with the world of physics and and I've always been kind of fascinated with that and you look at something like 
uh, mechanical, classical mechanics, which is, you know, Newtonian physics about, um, you know, how forces act on things at a certain level. And there, there's rules and guidelines that are helpful to give us an understanding, to give us a framework to be able to understand some of those things. But when you get down to the subatomic level, those things don't work anymore. And it's not that we should throw them out. It's not that we should completely say this is irrelevant because the stuff at the subatomic level has told us like none of this really works. That's not really how it works. It's like at a certain framework and at a certain level, that's a pretty good model for describing the sense of reality of what we encounter, but also recognizing that at another level, there's a place at which it it kind of breaks down and you need to shift your frame of reference and be able to look through a different lens at things. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I, I do think yeah. that's challenging, but I think, also think it, it's it's helpful to give us some some models of, of ways to look at it. Yeah, yeah. I know it was interesting because when I started teaching, well, I, I taught for, um, you know, the John Barnes and Mel Fasher release um, God for a while um, as, an, as a TA for him. And then once I left that model, I moved off on my own. And it was interesting because in that, you know, when I was still teaching Malfash release back then, um, you know, I I had evidence, right? Or I had the evidence that other people thought was important. And, you know, basically I was quoting or writing, if a study was was complementary to Malfash release, then I then I used it. I cherry picked that. Um, and if it wasn't, then it didn't go on my reference list because it wasn't proving what I wanted to prove. And, you know, that worked for a while. And I don't know, I don't yeah. want to say it worked because it was PTs and massage therapists. It worked because that's the model I, I presented from. I think that's probably the most fair. But then in 2013, when I started getting introduced and got invited into the speech pathology community to start teaching to them manual therapy, there's a very different structure on how they look at um how they look at work, how, what kind of evidence they need in order to even consider. And that was part of really part of this long process of saying, you know, I need to be able to better support not only what I do, but, you know, how I explain it. And then that big, that big wall between outcome-based studies, which is, we need them, right? We need outcome-based studies. When we yeah. do, I'm, I'm going to use myofascial release. When we do myofascial release, right, a person got better. But what is that study saying? And this took a long time. What is that study proving? Is it proving that fascia was restricted? Or is it proving that when we do things that we call myofascial release, that's helpful? So kind of unpacking that. And, you know, to me, the past five years, really getting to the core of some of the explanations of mechanism of actions of our touch, both from that tissue-based quality the neurocentric qualities, the behavior qualities, the autonomic, all, everything that co comes into play there. It's really frustrating. It's confusing. It's deep. And I think it's just like magnificent work because it, there's so many possibilities for why a person is helped when we touch them. But yet each of these little camps breaks it up into this small little thing instead yeah. of saying, uh -huh. right. you know what? We're touching a human. Anything mm -hmm. else is is just you know, it's speculation. Yeah. So with that being said, this is a question I hear a lot, you know, like from people as they start to grapple with these difficult models and difficult questions. So how much does that technique matter in comparison to some of these other things that we say are, are relevant aspects of that, you know, human interaction and that, that therapeutic alliance? Sure. Well, what is a technique to us as we're taught it, 
Often the technique is how we place our hand, the direction we move, the amount of force we, we use, all those things that sort of come as an enmeshment of the, the modality or model that we learn. But when you really look at what a technique is, there's incredible contextual aspects to it, right? Mm -hmm. There's, there are, you know, people don't like the word placebo because it seems they, they mistake what it, what it is and what it isn't. But when someone comes in to see me, um, air quote expert, that carries context, that carries value in yeah. and of itself, especially if it was a referral source from somebody they really trust, right? Mm -hmm. So you, they're walking into our room hoping and expecting from us to have the answers. And here we go. We tell them this story of fascia or muscle or, you know, we fill in the blank of the thousands of things we talk about. And, you know, they sit there and they nod their head like they really understand. And they're just saying, okay, come on, get on with it. You know, help me, help me. Mm -hmm. You know, how much is it? The, how much is the technique of the actual physical thing that we believe we're doing to the tissue? And how much of a technique are those those larger aspects, right? Yeah. I've been reading a lot lately of, you know, the concept of enteroception and how C-tactyl afferents feed into enteroception via contextually appropriate touch, et cetera. Enteroception, you know, to kind of um, simplify it for myself is a, is a person's ability to self-regulate. Mm -hmm. When we touch somebody in a certain way, we're turning on a person's I hate using some of these words because they get a little colloquial, like self-healing mechanism. That can go up a lot, a lot of different directions. But the human being's ability to self-regulate our own internal environment, there's actually evidence out there that says our contextually appropriate touch can actually foster those center, centers in the patient by simple transmission through C-tactile afferents. That's not about technique at all. That's almost about affect yeah. right, versus technique. Um, touch, yeah. touch is complex. There's so much good evidence out there, and it's not just in the manual therapy literature. It's in the behavioral, the psychological literature that's talking about some of these, all these overlayments of how touch can impact the human being, not mm -hmm. the muscle. Yeah. Let me ask you this in terms of like when you're working with some, let's just, I'm going to create a hypothetical situation here because I've had this happen numerous times. You're working with somebody who comes in very much attached to a particular narrative about what's going on with them. You know, my fascia is twisted. My, you know, trigger points are are on fire or whatever it is, the story. And that story doesn't really fit with what, let's say, our current understanding is of the the evidence, you know, but they're, they're on this story and very attached to this story. How do you work with that? I mean, uh, because I, I've made some bad mistakes early on by trying to correct those stories yeah. and yeah. created a really dysfunctional, non-therapeutic uh, relationship problem there that was then ineffective. So um, how do yeah. you, how do you, how do you deal with that? I, I deal with that by, first of all, never feeling like I have to take their story away from them. All right. Yeah. Um, I, I want to, I want to form a therapeutic alliance with this person. And often that means don't do anything to break it right yeah. and if i immediately start you know just tearing their beliefs apart and whether it's their internal belief system or someone else from their past and present who's sort of helped them adapt that story it seldom works out well if i end up demeaning them or demeaning another person so yeah. what i do is i sort of bide my time and if they turn the, the if they turn it into a question to me 
that's when I have an opportunity, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I'm pretty good at staying quiet anymore, which which was is an art for me. Um, yeah. It took a long time to learn. But you know what? Somebody's story, it, it's their lived experience. And no matter how much you and I know, we've not lived their life. So don't insert that into that, that I know this person's life. But yeah. should, should you, Whitney, say to me, you know, um, after we do our evaluation or whatever is we're doing, or what do you think about those trigger points, Walter? Are they worse you ever felt? Yeah. And, uh, you know, I could say, and this is kind of how I model this in my, with my patients as well as with when I'm teaching this work. It's like, you know what? Um, a lot of people think that those tight spots are trigger points or, you know, are really our trigger points or fascia restrictions or fill in the blank. And then what I like to do is insert an alternative narrative. Now that narrative tends to come from my, my perspective. And I tend towards more neurocentric explanations. And I said, it could be that trigger point that your doctor told you about, or it could be a, a sort of a neurologic remnant from a past injury that your nervous system simply hasn't let go of yet. Mm-hmm. You know, that's not exactly a, a, a perfect science-based explanation there either. It's simply giving them the opportunity to see that there might be more than one way to look at a problem. Yeah. There was a study that, um, that I wish I had my hands on it. I read it years ago. Um, but it was sort of at the onset of the pain science movement, right? When things were shifting from, you know, tissue-based stories to the pain is, is a, 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 you know, a construct of our brain, et cetera. And there's a lot of, you know, talk about something that's just guaranteed to start a fight on Facebook. It's about pain science, right? Yeah, right. Um, but what it was, was a study done for physical therapy for nonspecific low back pain, where what they wanted to tell, uh, figure out was, did pain science education make a difference in a patient's beliefs? Okay. Mm-hmm. So what they did, they, they constructed this study where um, the physical therapy session was simply an education session. And they did a pre-interview and a post-interview with the patients. And basically, patient came in, they said, okay, patient, you know, what do you think is going on with your body? And invariably, it was something along the, the lines of tissue damage or muscle weakness, right? Those mm-hmm. are kind of two classic things, right? Or their posture, all those other things that we like to blame, right? And then yeah. it was, in essence, it was an hour-long education session by the PT providing them the most up-to-date pain science education, the, you know, dumbed down a bit for the patient to understand. And then they did the, the, the post interview and this, this tremendous majority of people walked out still believing what they believe when they walked in, which yeah. is either really, really like bleak, how much does our education matter or more, more of an eye opener for us that, you know what? Narratives are tough to change. Mine are, yours are, and so are the patients. Mm-hmm. To me, that was really, and I read the similar study. And one of the things that struck me about that was, uh, you know, and I've mentioned this a number of times on the podcast, I have a passionate obsession with learning science in addition to, you know, what goes on with our, our clinical work here and, and learning a lot more about, um, you know, neuroscience and the process of learning. And the idea that we can have somebody walk into our clinic and instruct them on the complexities of the neurological system and these concepts in you know a few minutes of an interview discussion process with them and have them really get it uh, yeah. when it took us all, often many of us clinicians years and years and years of gradually moving towards that by constructing and assimilating knowledge based on you know compiled understanding of things it's a little bit naive to think that we can do that in just that short it few is. minutes you know it is. Um, yeah yeah and another thing that, you know, that's kind of about this in terms of the way people look at things, and this kind of gets back to the whole brain science thing. My wife often makes fun of me because I cannot 
find things that are right in front of me. You know, I mean, like I'll go look for you. Do you know where my teacup is? You know, it's sitting on the counter right in front of me. And, you know, I know this is of course getting worse with age now too, but the thing that's interesting about that is, to, is, is the part of, of brain function that's happening there, which is that I've got a picture of what that particular thing looks like and where it should be. And if it's not right where I think it should be, I will actually not see it. I mean, really, my brain will actually not register that it is actually there, even though visually it might go through my eyes. The brain, which assimilates all that visual information, just will not see that. And I think that's a lot yeah. of times what we're talking about with the the frameworks that people come in with. They have at framework and you just cannot change that in a session or two. It's, it's not going to yeah. happen. Yeah. You know, in terms of, of evidence, et cetera, people are often asking me, well, what kind of, what's the evidence you use to support your work, right? Which is a valid question, right? Like there's one paper, there's one whatever that that totally sums up, you know, an entire process. And yeah, I actually right. just wrote, I just wrote a, a little post or put it on social media a week or two ago. And, you know, if I really had to evaluate myself and take a look at what I've learned, in the, especially in the last five years with all the writing, et cetera, that I've been doing, you know, I think there's one paper, Whitney, that was really most pivotal in getting me to see the forest for the trees, if you will. And that, believe it or not, it's a it's a 1957 paper by psychologist Carl Rogers. Mm-hmm. Carl Rogers, and I, I, I so love this paper for what it says and what it doesn't say, because Carl Rogers in 1957 wrote this paper and presented at a psychological conference that basically got him ostracized from the profession. You know, he presented a paper which said, in essence, that it's not the modality that you use. It's not the tool that you apply that creates change in another human being. It's the relationship that you build with them. And I thought, okay, so we can't, you know, we can only transfer so much of that to a manual therapy, physical therapy context, et cetera. But the, that view is something that needs to be looked at today where, I mean, you, you know, social media and, and, and every other kind of advertising is just loaded with all these camps, all these modalities, all selling the best things since sliced bread. Right. And I think we yeah. need a good dose of Carl Rogers saying, you know, what's the common denominator in each and every one of these interventions? And it's the relationship that we build with another human being. And honestly, that's where more of my interest, not interest, but learning has been over the last five years is looking almost at those psychological and philosophical um, aspects of the relationship that I have with a patient and I have with a learner in my classes. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's fascinating. Interestingly, um, Carl Rogers wrote the book that was ended up being my very favorite book that I read during my time in college when I was a psychology student. He wrote a book called Freedom to Learn. Um, which was about the learning process. And um, I what, it was sort of a groundbreaking book for me because I had been up until that time very attached to this model of like, you have to go to school to learn X number of things and that's where you go get your learning done and then you leave. Mm-hmm. And that book really opened my eyes to understanding that learning is really all about what you want to do when you want to do it and how you make it apply to all kinds of things. And, you know, as a 20 year old college student, you know, you kind of use that book as an excuse for like, 
well, then it really doesn't matter if I study after the test or before the test, because <laughs> yeah, if I really want to know this stuff and learn, it, I can learn it later on. You know, so that was my excuse for not not getting good grades on things sometimes. You know, there you go. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, listen, I want to change track or shift tracks a little bit here and talk about your um, shared decision making model and that sort of clinical reasoning process, because this is another topic very near and dear to my heart. So tell me what you're what you're into and in exploring now along those lines. Uh, um, well, okay. So can I do a shameless plug here? Um, yeah, go for it. Yeah. Two, We're all about that here on the thinking practice. <laughs> Perfect. I got a book coming out. The book is called manual therapy and voice and swallowing, um, a person centered approach. It's mm -hmm. being published not through handspring, sorry, but through Compton publishing. Um, and as a result of that book that really forced me, not forced me, I chose to do it. Right. Um, that plus I'm in, I embarked on a master's um, program during COVID when nobody had anything to do. Um, and between the masters as well as the book, it essentially allowed me um, an excuse and a reason to really reframe how I look at my work, how I explain the work and the underpinnings of my work. And the thing that kept coming up repeatedly is the distinction between the clinician as expert model and the shared decision-making mo model. Diane Jacobs, who you're probably familiar with, and Jason Silvernail, they wrote a paper back in 2011 on the operator versus the interactor model. The operator right. mm -hmm. is, in essence, the clinician as expert model. People come in to see us. They deferred to us just about all, um, all the concerns, um, all decisions to a certain extent. Certainly, it's variable, but they... They, they need help. They come to us because we're experts and they'll often defer to us to allow us to make choices for them. And quite frequently, I mean, let's face it, Whitney, that's how you and I were probably trained. I don't, I can't speak sure. for you, but yeah. I was, um, that we're expected to know what's wrong with them and we're expected to know the best intervention. Mm -hmm. And that biomedical model, that, that works. I mean, it's been proven for decades now. But there's been a movement over the last oh, couple decades of trying to recalibrate the power in that relationship. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Diane and Jacob and Jason talked about it as instead of being an operator, one person basically running the machine um, as two people interacting with each other. And I think there's a lot of similarity between their um, their theory or their, their proposal there and a lot of the evidence in shared decision making, both in behavioral as well as the physical sciences. And essentially, the way I sort of bring that to um, the public is through the statement, I know a lot, I've learned a lot, I've trained a lot, I've experienced a lot, but there are key things missing from my knowledge. And that's essentially knowing your lived experience, knowing your values and expectations, mm -hmm. knowing your fears and hopes, et cetera. So what I try and do is incorporate my version of a shared decision-making model by in essence, let's just pretend here a moment, we're looking for a problem, right? That my training said to me, oh yeah, there's that fascia restriction, we found it. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, we tell them about it and then we'd, we'd make suggestions on what we should do with it. But in a very simple form, what I try and do now is I still do that palpation model. And when I feel it or what I think to be it, instead of saying, Walt, you're so brilliant, you found it. What I do is shut my trap and say, what do you feel? Whitney, what are you feeling right now? Right. Mm -hmm. And without guiding, without leading them on to say, what do you feel here? Or do you feel your pain? I try and keep these open-ended questioning, right? Um, what do you feel? 
gives a person a chance to to answer from a very wide um, lens, right? Yeah. I feel mm-hmm. pain. I feel pain. I feel fear that makes me anxious. Whatever. You know, giving them the opportunity to answer with an open lens instead of a very closed lens. Mm-hmm. And then instead of me telling them what should be done, to me, evaluation and treatment are now I use a, the, the slow static dry engagement that's very typical of myofascial release. Um, I don't call what I do myofascial release anymore because I don't think I'm treating fascia, um, but I still use that model. So instead of me then doing the things I was taught where it's taking up direction of ease and they'll take up the slack and all those things, um, I use that kind of model in a, in a wandering exploratory style fashion, but by telling my patient that I need their help, I need them to tell me what feels like it might be helpful, what feels like it could be a positive engagement or um, conversely, if there's anything that feels threatening or a waste of time, patients sometimes... Um, really balk at a shared decision-making model because I, I I don't force is too strong of a word, but I highly encourage them to become an active participant in it. Some patients relish that. Other patients really kind of, they, they, they no, I, I don't want to do that. They go, they leave, they go look and find somebody who will be the expert and tell mm-hmm. them what's wrong with them and what should be done. But to me, shared decision-making, um, well, if you look at the evidence for shared decision-making, there's there's smaller pockets of evidence in the manual therapies like you and I are doing that shared decision-making can actually ramp up outcomes. But in the larger medical and healthcare sense, um, there's ample evidence to say um, empowering a person in their own healthcare decisions actually improves outcomes, improves patient satisfaction. And Whitney, patient satisfaction is one of the most massive contextual factors that you and I can leverage, right? Yeah, right. Um, so in a nutshell, that's that's sort of the way I, I go about shared decision-making. Mm-hmm. When I teach a class, I, I one of the first things I say is that while all of you might've thought you came here to learn some nifty hands-on skills, um, I said, what I really hope you leave here with is the ability and willingness to apply shared decision-making, not just in manual therapy, but everything you do in a therapeutic environment, right? Mm-hmm. That really is my goal. I just use, you know, touch manual therapy as sort of the, the, um, the way to get accomplish that. Yeah. So let's say for people who might be a little bit newer to these concepts and ideas of shared decision-making, how does somebody learn more about this or begin to build skills around this? Because it's something that I don't think is covered very well in most of our, you know, entry-level education programs. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, okay. So another shameless plug, I have a free one-hour course on my website available on shared decision-making um, that covers, a, you know, it, it, we co- I cover just, a, you know, sort of the tip of the iceberg there. Um, both if you want the theory, the science, the, you know, the evolution of shared decision-making, but also some more practical ways on how to go about beginning to incorporate shared decision-making in your current model. Um, mm-hmm. I, I teach shared decision-making from my slow, static MFR style of touch, but I think you can use it with any kind of model. I give the example for physical therapy and exercise, right? Exercise, shared decision-making model. You know, I, I, there's a podcast that I really appreciate because they're, they're coming from a really strong evidence base in the physical therapy world. But there were two people, the, the moderator and a guest, um, who were joking um, when it comes to patient-centered care. And they joked that it's not like you can ask a patient what they should do for an exercise. And, you know, that kind of got laughs out of both of them. And 
you can't totally hand it over to them to say, what exercise should I do? Or what manual therapy or massage technique should I do? But I think we can kind of meet in the middle, like with, with okay, so I'm going to use the example of when I had my rotator cuff repair, you know, seven or eight years ago. And, you know, I did the repair, then I went to PT and my 13 year old physical therapist, he did a decent job. All right. He seemed like he was about 13. Right. But it felt like he was basically it felt like he was basically pulling the sheet of paper out of the file cabinet, rotator cuff repair. Here's what you do. Right. Basically Mm -hmm. hooking me up with TheraBand doing the best stuff that we do. Mm -hmm. And all the while I'm grousing because what does this 13 year old know and all that stuff, you know, get get out of your own way, Walt, et cetera. But there was a really interesting observation on my part that, okay, I was doing these exercises. It's like you know what, this isn't quite hitting that note in my brain of relevance to me. So Mm -hmm. I never was a good um, direction follower in school. And, you know, I'm 63. No, I'm still not. Because what I did was when he wasn't looking, I'd start to wander. I'd start to seek and search. And I'm thought like, oh, wait a minute, right there. There's that feeling right there. Right. And I I just wish he had taken that time. And it might be a a, a process. it might be part of they don't have enough time, right? Mm-hmm. But I also think that we're so locked into here's what we need to do with you that we don't hand over ownership of the responsibility to at least from a shared perspective to the patient because whether it's that TheraBand exercise or the moves that you and I do with our hands, I think if we can open up that gate to allow them to enter into our yard and, and share this with us, I think we can have a really interesting relationship. Now, from a massage perspective, and again, I don't want to go too too deep into your field or, or your listeners' field because I'm a PT, not a massage therapist. You have a real problem there with shared decision-making because it qu- requires active engagement of the patient, active mm-hmm. engagement of the client. And that sometimes runs counter to maybe one what might one might view as a stereotypical massage setting. Yeah. The patient is allowed to stay quiet, stay, you know, go deeper, whatever they want to do. And um, I was taught that in myofascial release that we need to, we need to stay out of, well, away from words, et cetera, so they can kind of dive deep into their emotions. And the more I understood about what a bad narrative that the emotions are stored in the fascist story was, and the more I started learning about this stuff, the more I realized that it's important for me to educate, here we go with the air quotes again, educate my person on my patient that, this isn't going to resemble what you might expect. I'm I'm very needy. I'm annoying because I'm going to ask you a lot of questions and I'm going mm-hmm. to keep asking them because I want to make sure that we stay doing something that you feel is relevant mm-hmm. and that yeah. you feel is pertinent to your problem, not that I think is important. Mm-hmm. So that, you know, I'm curious, when you were talking about this, it made me start thinking like, do you think that there's a, a graduated process um, it kind of gets back to that sort of physics metaphor that I was talking about later of like, you have to go through maybe that operator model first to understand how some of the things work in the therapeutic world. And then this is a more sort of advanced level of understanding of becoming an even better clinician, or can you kind of jump to that earlier on without sort of going through that? Do you think that's feasible? I think you can jump through it. I think for most of our um, shared professions, Everybody already learned the operator model, right? Yeah. But I have an interesting, um, it's an interesting process in my classes, the voice and swallowing disorders class I teach because I'm getting speech pathologists who, while they're licensed to touch, the vast majority of them doesn't use any kind of touch-based intervention like we're talking about here. So basically, I'm introducing them from scratch that 
here's the way you can do it. Not the way it should be done, but here's the way you can do it. And based on the feedback from the, the people who've been through my program, it can work in that order too. Um, I think that no matter how we learn things, we people figure out ways to make it make sense to us, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, man, these are just um, fascinating um, explorations. And and I know we could go uh, down all of these rabbit holes for a couple different hours doing things. So um, I would like to have you come back and we'll, you know, explore some of these things in, in greater detail again. But until that time, well, how can people find out more about you, your programs, your books, your resources and things like that? This is opportunity for another shameless plug. Tell us where you are. Hey, yeah. I am at waltfritz.com. It's probably the fastest and easiest way to find me, waltfritz.com. Okay. You know, I've got some newly released online courses, not just in this voice and swallowing disorders, but I released a comprehensive um, whole body course. Um, on online version, I teach uh, I teach internationally now um, in terms of that voice and swallowing disorders work. But I, I, I really do get a lot of massage therapists coming to those classes, which I love. I love a diverse group. I love conflicting opinion. Um, Fortunately, the fists never fly at seminars, but it's like close sometimes because people yeah. are really, you see people struggling with moving away from their beliefs. Um, the book is on there. The book is, like I said, should be out in a couple of weeks and um, et cetera, et cetera. Lots of, lots of free stuff on the website too, um, including that shared decision-making um, talk that I gave. Um, and you're welcome to come on and avail yourself of that, even if you don't do anything except that and see what I have to say. Yeah, and and Whitney, I'd be I'd I'd really uh, enjoy being back again. So it's yeah, fun to we catch will, up after. Yeah. We'll definitely do that. I want to explore this in some more detail, but can you just, um, you know, also real quickly maybe talk just a little bit about this work that you do with the the swallowing disorders and with the speech therapists and that group mm -hmm. because this is something kind of unusual for a lot of the people that are in at least my profession in the massage world of something yeah. for them to think about of like tell me yeah. just a little bit about that there. Well, without going too far down this um, this rabbit hole, 1980 was about the introduction of manual therapies in um, in the SLP, the ENT world for muscle tension dysphonia. Muscle tension dysphonia is a, is a voice disorder, often sort of sort of simplified to say hoarseness. And in 1980, a, a physician um, wrote about using laryngeal manipulation and laryngeal reposturing. The view that the larynx was too high, they manipulate it to reduce the tone and mm -hmm. reposture it. They pulled it down to get a more normal voice. And in the in their literature, their, their um, research, it's been pretty well covered over the past however many years that it's been. Um, but what I really like to watch is evolution of a model, evolution of a narrative, because they went from the last, the, what I call the what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas perspective, like you and I probably were, were taught that the problems right here, all I need to do is is do this and we drop the muscle tension or we reduce the, the trigger for whatever that is. And you start looking at that that research and the writings from the earth from the 90s, et cetera. And it's all about what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. And then there's papers that sort of in the 2000 talked about while we think the problem is here. We understand that it's a cascade of events up and down from the brain until in 2017, Nelson Roy, a PhD from the University of Utah, did a study where they basically handed a woman with muscle tension dysphonia a script. They slid her in an, in an MRI and they, they had her read the script and they watched her brain. They saw the, the atypical patterning of her brain when she spoke and then they pulled her out of the machine they did the equivalent of an hour's worth of 
of laryngeal manipulation and then um, tapering to see if she could hold those gains. And then they slid her back in the machine. She read the same script again. And what they saw was a different acting brain that wow. in that mm -hmm. course of one session that her brain was completely functioning at a, in a different way. The, the paper doesn't prove that it's not in the tissues, it's in the brain. But what it shows is that interplay between the human, the nervous system. And it's not just about what happens in Vegas. And I think yeah. if educators could move away from that sense that it's all right here, you know, there's a, a paper, I, you probably read this one by Cole, I think it's 2019, Manual Therapy Education, it's time to move on. Mm -hmm. And to me, that's what people in our field should really be reading and say, can we start explaining this work from multifactorial perspectives? Yeah. yeah. I kind of diverse, divert or diverge from your original question. Sorry about that. That's all right. But that's I'm, yeah. I love those yeah. those divergent pathways that we head down. So and like I said, you know, I know you and I can talk about this for hours on end here. And so um, I want to thank you again so much for for coming to be a part of our, our discussion today. This was absolutely delightful. And I certainly want to have you come back and, and do this again with us. So I, I hope you'll do that. I will. I'm honored to be here. So thanks. Good to catch right. up well, again. Indeed. Yeah. Indeed. Well, thank you for uh, being with us here on The Thinking Practitioner. And do keep in mind, Books of Discovery has been a part of massage therapy education for over 20 years. Thousands of schools around the world teach with their textbooks, e-textbooks, and digital resources. And Books of Discovery likes to say learning adventures start here. And they see that same spirit here on the Thinking Practitioner podcast and are proud to sponsor our work, knowing we share the mission to bring the massage and bodywork community closer together. So thank you to all of our sponsors. You can stop by our sites for uh, show notes, uh, transcripts, videos, audio feeds. You can find that over on my site at academyofclinicalmassage.com. And over on Till's site, Till is off in Thailand right now in Asia. So I'm going to be doing a couple episodes without him. So he's doing some training over there and then we'll be back uh, shortly. You can find that over on his site at advanced-trainings.com. If you've got questions or things you'd like to hear from us uh, or hear us talk about some more, please do email us at info at thethinkingpractitioner.com or you can look for us on social media. You can find Till over his name, Till Luca, and also for me in social media over on my name, Whitney Lowe as well. And lastly, if you can, take a moment to rate us on Apple Podcasts as it does help other people find the show. And you can hear us, of course, on Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or wherever else you happen to listen, play, uh, make sure to subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app, share the word, and do tell a friend. Thank you again, my good friend, Walt. Wonderful talking with you here. And thanks, everybody else, for hanging out with us today. We'll see you on the next episode.